Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to episode 7 of Stories of Your and Yours. Now, we're going to get to this week's stories in just a couple of minutes here, but I'm going to start off the podcast the way we've done the last couple of weeks, and that's with an iTunes review. And that's going to start right now. An Exceptional Gem by T-Bird121 I'm so glad I found this podcast. The producer does a fantastic job of curating the best stories, giving historical background and fascinating context, performing with talent, and adding just the right sound effects. Love it! Well, thanks to T-Bird121 for that fine review, and to all the rest of you out there who have not left a review yet, you know what to do. There's a link in the description to this very show. Click on that link, go to iTunes slash Apple Podcast, and leave that review for the show. And as you've seen for the last few weeks, I'll read that review here on the show and produce it just like we do for the other stories. Now, on to this week's featured author. This week, we are featuring the first listener request that we've done so far on the show. And this request is from Andy out in Kokomo, Indiana. And he requested Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut. And that is going to be the first story that we do this week. Now, a little bit about Kurt Vonnegut. Vonnegut is known for his science fiction and dark humor, both of which will be on full display in today's stories. His most well-known work was Slaughterhouse-Five, which was a science fiction novel published in 1969. Slaughterhouse-Five is an anti-war novel and was heavily influenced by Vonnegut's time as a soldier in World War II, specifically during the bombing of Dresden in 1945, in which the city was mostly destroyed. And you'll notice some things in these two stories today that were prevailing themes in Vonnegut's writings generally, mainly a distrust of authority, specifically government authority, and a kind of simple, straightforward writing style. So, speaking of today's stories, let's start with the request of Harrison Bergeron. Harrison Bergeron was first published in 1961 in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, which is as pretty straightforward a title as you're going to hear. Now, this magazine was originally published as the Magazine of Fantasy in 1949, but after just one issue under that title, science fiction was added to the name, and it remains that way today. And this is the first magazine that we've covered here on the show that actually still exists in the present day, being 2018. Just as a side note, the first issue published in 1949 cost 35 cents, and the latest issue will run you about $9. Now all that, of course, is part of the preliminaries, and let's get right into this week's first story. Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law, they were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else, nobody was better looking than anybody else, nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All of this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th Amendments to the Constitution, and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. Some things about living still weren't quite right, though. April, for instance, still drove people crazy by not being springtime. And it was in that clammy month that the H.G. men took George and Hazel Bergeron's 14-year-old son Harrison away. 
It was tragic, all right, but George and Hazel couldn't think about it very hard. Hazel had a perfectly average intelligence, which meant she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. And George, while his intelligence was way above normal, had a little mental handicap radio in his ear. He was required by law to wear it at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noise to keep people like George from taking unfair advantage of their brains. George and Hazel were watching television. There were tears on Hazel's cheeks, but she'd forgotten for the moment what they were about. On the television screen, there were ballerinas. A buzzer sounded in George's head. His thoughts fled in panic, like bandits from a burglar alarm. That was a real pretty dance, that dance they just did, said Hazel. Huh? said George. That dance, it was nice, said Hazel. Yep, said George. He tried to think a little about the ballerinas. They weren't really very good, no better than anyone else would have been, anyway. They were burdened with sash weights and bags of birdshot, and their faces were masked so that no one seeing a free and graceful gesture or a pretty face would feel like something that the cat drug in. George was toying with the vague notion that maybe dancers shouldn't be handicapped, but he didn't get very far with it before another noise in his ear radio scattered his thoughts. George winced. So did two out of the eight ballerinas. Hazel saw him wince. Having no mental handicap herself, she had to ask George what the latest sound had been. It sounded like someone hitting a milk bottle with a ball-peen hammer, said George. I think it would be real interesting hearing all the different sounds, said Hazel, a little envious. All the things they think up. Ah, uh, said George. Only if I was the handicapper general, you know what I would do, said Hazel. Hazel, as a matter of fact, bore a strong resemblance to the handicapper general, a woman named Diana Moon Glampers. If I was Diana Moon Glampers, said Hazel, I'd have chimes on Sunday, just chimes, kind of in honor of religion. I could think if it was just chimes, said George. Well, maybe make them real loud, said Hazel. I think I'd make a good handicapper general. Good as anyone else, said George. Who knows better than I do what normal is, said Hazel. Right, said George. He began to think glimmeringly about his abnormal son, who was now in jail, about Harrison, but a 21-gun salute in his head stopped that. Boy, said Hazel, that was a doozy, wasn't it? It was such a doozy that George was white and trembling, and tears stood on the rims of his red eyes. Two of the eight ballerinas had collapsed to the studio floor, were holding their temples. All of a sudden, you look so tired, said Hazel. Why don't you stretch out on the sofa so as you can rest your handicap bag on the pillows, honey bunch? She was referring to the 47 pounds of birdshot in a canvas bag, which was padlocked around George's neck. Go on and rest the bag for a little while, she said. I don't care if you're not equal to me for a while. George weighed the bag with his hands. I don't mind it, he said. I don't notice it anymore. It's just a part of me. You've been so tired lately, kind of wore out, said Hazel. If there was just some way we could make a little hole in the bottom of the bag and just take out a few of them lead balls, just a few. Two years in prison and two thousand dollars fine for every ball I took out, said George. I don't call that a bargain. If you could just take a few out when you come home from work, said Hazel. I mean, you don't compete with anybody around here, you just sit around. If I tried to get away with it, said George, then other people would get away with it, and pretty soon we'd be right back to the Dark Ages again, with everybody competing against everybody else. You wouldn't like that, would you? I'd hate it, said Hazel. Well, there you are, said George. 
The minute people start cheating on laws, what do you think happens to society? If Hazel hadn't been able to come up with an answer to this question, George couldn't have supplied one. A siren was going off in his head. Reckon it'd fall all apart, said Hazel. What would, said George blankly. Society, said Hazel uncertainly. Wasn't that what you just said? Who knows, said George. The television program was suddenly interrupted for a news bulletin. It wasn't clear at first as to what the bulletin was about since the announcer, like all announcers, had a serious speech impediment. For about half a minute, and in a state of high excitement, the announcer tried to say, Ladies and gentlemen. He finally gave up, handed the bulletin to a ballerina to read. That's all right, Hazel said of the announcer. He tried. That's the big thing. He tried to do the best he could with what God gave him. He should get a nice raise for trying so hard. Ladies and gentlemen, said the ballerina, reading the bulletin. She must have been extraordinarily beautiful because the mask she wore was hideous, and it was easy to see that she was the strongest and most graceful of all the dancers, for her handicap bags were as big as those worn by two hundred pound men, and she had to apologize at once for her voice, which was a very unfair voice for a woman to use. Her voice was a warm, luminous, timeless melody. Excuse me, she said and began again, making her voice absolutely uncompetitive. Harrison Bergeron, age 14, she said in a grackle squawk, has just escaped from jail, where he was held on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. He is a genius and an athlete, is under-handicapped, and should be regarded as extremely dangerous. A police photograph of Harrison Bergeron was flashed on the screen upside down, then sideways, upside down again, then right side up. The picture showed the full length of Harrison against the background, calibrated in feet and inches. He was exactly seven feet tall. The rest of Harrison's appearance was Halloween and hardware. Nobody had ever borne heavier handicaps. He had outgrown hindrances faster than the HG men could think them up. Instead of a little ear radio for a mental handicap, he wore a tremendous pair of earphones and spectacles with thick wavy lenses. The spectacles were intended to make him not only half-blind, but to give him a wanging headache besides. Scrap metal was hung all over him. Ordinarily, there was a certain symmetry, a military neatness to the handicaps issued to the strong people, but Harrison looked like a walking junkyard. In the race of life, Harrison carried 300 pounds. And, to offset his good looks, the HG men required that he wear at all times a red rubber ball for a nose, keep his eyebrows shaved off, and cover his even white teeth with black caps at Snaggletooth Random. "'If you see this boy,' said the ballerina, "'do not, I repeat, do not try to reason with him.' There was the shriek of a door being torn from its hinges. Screams and barking cries of consternation came from the television set. The photograph of Harrison Bergeron on the screen jumped again and again, as though dancing to the tune of an earthquake. George Bergeron correctly identified the earthquake, and well he might have, for many was the time his own home had danced to the same crashing tune. My God, that must be Harrison, said George. The realization was blasted from his mind instantly by the sound of an automobile collision in his head. When George could open his eyes again, the photograph of Harrison was gone. A living, breathing Harrison filled the screen. Clanking, clownish, and huge, Harrison stood in the center of the studio. The knob of the uprooted studio door was still in his hand. Ballerinas, technicians, musicians, and announcers 
cowered on their knees before him, expecting to die. "'I am the Emperor!' cried Harrison. "'Do you hear? I am the Emperor. Everybody must do what I say at once!' He stamped his foot, and the studio shook. "'Even as I stand here,' he bellowed, "'crippled, hobbled, sickened, I am a greater ruler than any man who ever lived. Now watch me become what I can become!' Harrison tore the straps of his handicap harness like wet tissue paper, tore straps guaranteed to support 5,000 pounds. Harrison's scrap iron handicaps crashed to the floor. Harrison thrust his thumbs under the bar of the padlock that secured his head harness. The bar snapped like celery. Harrison smashed his headphones and spectacles against the wall. He flung away his rubber ball nose, revealed a man that would have awed Thor, the god of thunder. I shall now select my empress he said, looking down on the cowering people. Let the first woman who dares rise to her feet claim her mate and her throne. A moment passed, and then a ballerina arose, swaying like a willow. Harrison plucked the mental handicap from her ear, snapped off her physical handicaps with marvelous delicacy. Last of all, he removed her mask. She was blindingly beautiful. Now, said Harrison, taking her hand, "'Shall we show the people the meaning of the word dance? "'Music!' he commanded. "'The musicians scrambled back into their chairs, "'and Harrison stripped them of their handicaps too. "'Play your best,' he told them, "'and I'll make you barons and dukes and earls.' "'The music began. "'It was normal at first. "'Cheap, silly, false. "'But Harrison snatched two musicians from their chairs, "'waved them like batons as he sang the music as he wanted it played.' He slammed them back into their chairs. The music began again, and was much improved. Harrison and his empress merely listened to the music for a while, listened gravely, as though synchronizing their heartbeats with it. They shifted their weights to their toes. Harrison placed his big hands on the girl's tiny waist, letting her sense the weightlessness that would soon be hers. And then, in an explosion of joy and grace, into the air they sprang. Not only were the laws of the land abandoned, but the law of gravity and laws of motion as well. They reeled, whirled, swiveled, flounced, capered, gambolled, and spun. They leaped like deer on the moon. The studio ceiling was thirty feet high, but each leap brought the dancers nearer to it. It became their obvious intention to kiss the ceiling. They kissed it. And then, neutraling gravity with love and pure will, they remained suspended in the air, inches below the ceiling and they kissed each other for a long, long time. It was then that Diana Moon Glampers, the handicapper general, came into the studio with a double-barreled 10-gauge shotgun. She fired twice, and the Emperor and the Empress were dead before they hit the floor. Diana Moon Glampers loaded the gun again. She aimed it at the musicians and told them they had 10 seconds to get their handicaps back on. It was then that the Bergeron's television tube burned out. Hazel turned to comment about the blackout to George, but George had gone out into the kitchen for a can of beer. George came back in with the beer, paused while a handicapped signal shook him up, and then he sat down again. "'You've been crying,' he said to Hazel. "'Yup,' she said. "'What about?' he said. "'I forget,' she said. "'Something real sad on television.' "'What was it?' he said. "'It's all kind of mixed up in my mind,' said Hazel." "'Forget sad things,' said George. "'I always do,' said Hazel. "'That's my girl,' said George. 
He winced. There was the sound of a riveting gun in his head. Gee, I could tell that one was a doozy, said Hazel. You can say that again, said George. Gee, said Hazel. I could tell that one was a doozy. Well, as our title character found out, being the boss isn't always all it's cracked up to be. Our second story this week is called To Be or Not To Be. Now, that title is not exactly what it sounds like when you hear it as compared to the written form of the title. That is, the title is written alphanumerically with the number 2, the letter B, the letter R, the number 0, which is the not, the number 2, and the letter B. To Be or Not To Be. Now, of course, that'll make more sense as you hear the story. To Be or Not To Be first appeared in the science fiction magazine If in 1962. If published its first issue in March of 1952 and featured several notable writers over the course of its run until it merged with Galaxy Science Fiction in early 1975. Larry Niven, Robert A. Heinlein, Harlan Ellison, John Bruner, Joe Haldeman, James E. Gunn, and many, many others appeared in If. If never really reached the first tier of sci-fi magazines like the aforementioned Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, or Astounding Science Fiction, which we've covered here before, but there were still several notable stories that appeared in If, such as A Case of Conscience by James Blish and I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream by Harlan Ellison. Isn't that a heck of a title? Now, with a second set of preliminaries out of the way, let's move into the second story this week. To Be or Not To Be by Kurt Vonnegut Everything was perfectly swell. There were no prisons, no slums, no insane asylums, no cripples, no poverty, no wars. All diseases were conquered. So was old age. Death, barring accidents, was an adventure for volunteers. The population of the United States was stabilized at 40 million souls. One bright morning in the Chicago Lying-In Hospital, a man named Edward K. Whaling Jr. waited for his wife to give birth. He was the only man waiting. Not many people were born a day anymore. Whaling was 56, a mere stripling in a population whose average age was 129. X-rays had revealed that his wife was going to have triplets. The children would be his first. Young Whaling was hunched in his chair, his head in his hand. He was so rumpled, so still and colorless as to be virtually invisible. His camouflage was perfect, since the waiting room had a disorderly and demoralized air, too. Chairs and ashtrays had been moved away from the walls. The floor was paved with spattered dropcloths. The room was being redecorated. It was being redecorated as a memorial to a man who had volunteered to die. A sardonic old man, about two hundred years old, sat on a stepladder, painting a mural he did not like. Back in the days when people aged visibly, his age would have been guessed at thirty-five or so. Aging had touched him that much before the cure for aging was found. The mural he was working on depicted a very neat garden. Men and women in white, doctors and nurses, turned the soil, planted seedlings, sprayed bugs, spread fertilizer. Men and women in purple uniforms pulled up weeds, cut down plants that were old and sickly, raked leaves, carried refuse to the trash burners. Never, 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 not even in medieval Holland or old Japan, had a garden been more formal, been better tended, 
Every plant had all the loam, light, water, air, and nourishment it could use. A hospital orderly came down the corridor, singing under his breath a popular song. If you don't like my kisses, honey, here's what I will do. I'll go see a girl in purple, kiss this sad world toodaloo. If you don't want my loving, why should I take up all this space? I'll get off this old planet, let some sweet baby have my place. The orderly looked at the mural and at the muralist. Looks so real, he said. I can practically imagine I'm standing in the middle of it. What makes you think you're not in it? Said the painter. He gave a satiric smile. It's called the happy garden of life, you know. That's good of Dr. Hitz, said the orderly. He was referring to one of the male figures in white, whose head was a portrait of Dr. Benjamin Hitz, the hospital's chief obstetrician. Hitz was a blindingly handsome man. A lot of faces still to fill in, said the orderly. He meant that the faces of many of the figures in the mural were still blank. All blanks were to be filled with portraits of important people on either the hospital staff or from the Chicago office of the Federal Bureau of Termination. Must be nice to be able to make pictures that look like something, said the orderly. The painter's face curdled with scorn. You think I'm proud of this daub? He said. You think this is my idea of what life really looks like? What's your idea of what life really looks like? Said the orderly. The painter gestured at a foul drop cloth. There's a good picture of it, he said. Frame that, and you'll have a picture of a damn sight more honest than this one. You're a gloomy old duck, aren't you? Said the orderly. Is that a crime? Said the painter. The orderly shrugged. If you don't like it here, Grandpa, he said, and finished the thought with the trick telephone number that people who didn't want to live anymore were supposed to call. The zero in the telephone number was pronounced not. The number was... To be are not to be. It was the telephone number of an institution whose fanciful sobriquets included Automat, Birdland, Cannery, Catbox, De Louser, Easy Go, Goodbye Mother, Happy Hooligan, Kiss Me Quick, Lucky Pierre, Sheep Dip, Wearing Blender, Weep No More, and Why Worry. To be or not to be was the telephone number of the municipal gas chambers of the Federal Bureau of Termination. The painter thumbed his nose at the orderly. When I decide it's time to go, he said, it won't be at the sheep dip. A do-it-yourselfer, eh? said the orderly. Messy business, Grandpa. Why don't you have a little consideration for the people who have to clean up after you? The painter expressed with an obscenity his lack of concern for the tribulations of his survivors. The world could do with a good deal more mess if you ask me, he said. The orderly laughed and moved on. Wailing, the waiting father mumbled something without raising his head, and then he fell silent again. A coarse, formidable woman strode into the waiting room on spike heels. Her shoes, stockings, trench coat, bag, and overseas cap were all purple, the purple the painter called the color of grapes on Judgment Day. The medallion on her purple musette bag was the seal of the service division of the Federal Bureau of Termination, an eagle perched on a turnstile. The woman had a lot of facial hair, an unmistakable mustache, in fact. A curious thing about gas chamber hostesses was that, no matter how lovely and feminine they were when recruited, they all sprouted mustaches within five years or so. "'Is this where I'm supposed to come?' she said to the painter. "'A lot would depend on what your business was,' he said. "'You aren't about to have a baby, are you?' "'They told me I was supposed to pose for some picture,' she said. "'My name's Leora Duncan,' she waited." And you dunk people, he said. What? Skip it, he said. That sure is a beautiful picture, she said. 
looks just like heaven or something. Or something, said the painter. He took a list of names from his smock pocket. Duncan, 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 he said, scanning the list. Yes, here you are. You're entitled to be immortalized. See any faceless body here you'd like me to stick your head on? We've got a few choice ones left. She studied the mural bleakly. Gee, she said. They're all the same to me. I don't know anything about art. A body's a body, eh? He said. Alrighty. As a master of fine art, I recommend this body here. He indicated the faceless figure of a woman who was carrying dried stalks to a trash burner. Well, said Leora Duncan, that's more the disposal people, isn't it? I mean, I'm in service. I don't do any disposing. The painter clapped his hands in mock delight. You say you don't know anything about art, and then you prove in the next breath that you know more about it than I do. Of course the sheave carrier is wrong for a hostess, a snipper, a pruner. That's more your line. He pointed to a figure in purple who was sawing a dead branch from an apple tree. How about her? He said. You like her at all? Gosh, she said, and she blushed and became humble. That, that puts me right next to Dr. Hitz. That upsets you? He said. Good gravy, no, she said. It's, it's just such an honor. Ah, you admire him, huh? He said. Who doesn't admire him? She said, worshipping the portrait of Hitz. It was the portrait of a tanned, white-haired, omnipotent Zeus, 240 years old. Who doesn't admire him? She said again. He was responsible for setting up the very first gas chamber in Chicago. Nothing would please me more, said the painter, than to put you next to him for all time. Sawing off a limb, that strikes you as appropriate? That is kind of like what I do, she said. She was demure about what she did. What she did was make people comfortable while she killed them. And while Leor Duncan was posing for her portrait, into the waiting room bounded Dr. Hitz himself. He was seven feet tall, and he boomed with importance, accomplishments, and the joy of living. Well, Miss Duncan, Miss Duncan, he said, and he made a joke. What are you doing here? He said. This isn't where people leave. This is where they come in. We're going to be in the same picture together, she said shyly. Good, said Dr. Hitz heartily. And say, isn't that some picture? I sure am honored to be in it with you, she said. Let me tell you, he said. I'm honored to be in it with you. Without women like you, this wonderful world we've got wouldn't be possible. He saluted her and moved toward the door that led to the delivery rooms. Guess what was just born, he said. I can't, she said. Triplets, he said. Triplets, she said. She was exclaiming over the legal implications of triplets. The law said that no newborn child could survive unless the parents of the child could find someone who would volunteer to die. Triplets, if they were all to live, called for three volunteers. Do the parents have three volunteers? said Leora Duncan. Last I heard, said Dr. Hitz, they had one and were trying to scrape another two up. I don't think they made it, she said. Nobody made three appointments with us. Nothing but singles going through today unless somebody called in after I left. What's the name? Wailing, said the waiting father, sitting up, red-eyed and frowsy. Edward K. Wailing Jr. is the name of the happy father-to-be. He raised his right hand, looked at a spot on the wall, gave a hoarsely wretched chuckle. Present, he said. Oh, Mr. Wailing, said Dr. Hitz, I didn't see you. The invisible man, said Wailing. 
They just phoned me that your triplets have been born, said Dr. Hitz. They're all fine, and so is the mother. I'm on my way in to see them now. Hooray, said Wailing emptily. You don't sound very happy, said Dr. Hitz. What man in my shoes wouldn't be happy, said Wailing. He gestured with his hands to symbolize carefree simplicity. All I have to do is pick out which one of the triplets is going to live, then deliver my maternal grandfather to the happy hooligan and come back here with a receipt. Dr. Hitz became rather severe with Wailing, towered over him. You don't believe in population control, Mr. Wailing, he said. I think it's perfectly keen, said Wailing tautly. Would you like to go back to the good old days when the population of the Earth was twenty billion? About to come forty billion? Then eighty billion? Then one hundred sixty billion? Do you know what a druplet is, Mr. Wailing? said Hitz. Nope, said Wailing sulkily. A druplet, Mr. Wailing, is one of the little knobs, one of the little pulpy grains of a blackberry, said Dr. Hitz. Without population control, human beings would now be pecked on this surface of this old planet like druplets on a blackberry. Think of it. Wailing continued to stare at the same spot on the wall. In the year 2000, said Dr. Hitz, before scientists stepped in and laid down the law, there wasn't even enough drinking water to go around and nothing to eat but seaweed. And still, people insisted on their right to reproduce like jackrabbits. And their right, if possible, to live forever. I want those kids, said Wailing quietly. I want all three of them. Of course you do, said Dr. Hitz. That's only human. I don't want my grandfather to die either, said Wailing. Nobody's really happy about taking a close relative to the cat box, said Dr. Hitz gently, sympathetically. I wish people wouldn't call it that said Leora Duncan. What? said Dr. Hitz. I wish people wouldn't call it the cat box and things like that, she said. It gives people the wrong impression. You're absolutely right, said Dr. Hitz. Forgive me. He corrected himself, gave the municipal gas chambers their official title, a title no one ever used in conversation. I should have said Ethical Suicide Studios, he said. That sounds so much better, said Leora Duncan. This child of yours, whichever one you should decide to keep, Mr. Whaling, said Dr. Hitz, he or she is going to live on a happy, roomy, clean, rich planet, thanks to population control, in a garden like that mural there, he shook his head. Two centuries ago, when I was a young man, it was a hell that nobody thought could last another twenty years. Now centuries of peace and plenty stretch before us as far as the imagination cares to travel. He smiled luminously. The smile faded as he saw that Wailing had just drawn a revolver. Wailing shot Dr. Hitz dead. There's room for one, a great big one, he said. And then he shot Leora Duncan. It's only death, he said to her as she fell. There, room for two. And then he shot himself, making room for all three of his children. Nobody came running. Nobody seemingly heard the shots. The painter sat on top of his stepladder, looking down reflectively on the sorry scene. The painter pondered the mournful puzzle of life demanding to be born and, once born, demanding to be fruitful, to multiply and to live as long as possible, to do all that on a very small planet that would have to last forever. All the answers that the painter could think of were grim, even grimmer surely than a cat box, a happy hooligan, an easy go. He thought of war, he thought of plague. He thought of starvation. He knew that he would never paint again. He let his paintbrush fall to the dropcloths below. 
and then he decided he had had about enough of life in the happy garden of life, too, and he came slowly down from the ladder. He took Wailing's pistol, really intending to shoot himself. But he didn't have the nerve. And then he saw the telephone booth in the corner of the room. He went to it, dialed the well-remembered number. 2B R not 2B. Federal Bureau of Termination, said the very warm voice of a hostess. How soon could I get an appointment? He asked, speaking very carefully. We could probably fit you in late this afternoon, sir, she said. It might even be earlier if we get a cancellation. All right, said the painter. Fit me in, if you please. And he gave her his name, spelling it out. Thank you, sir, said the hostess. Your city thanks you, your country thanks you, your planet thanks you. But the deepest thanks of all is from future generations. Well, say what you will about the old happy hooligan, but at least they've got a nice customer service line. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours. Make sure, if you have not done so yet, that you rate and review the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and TuneIn Radio. The iTunes ratings and reviews are super important to the show. That helps us show up in more search results. That helps get the word out about the show. So if you got a few minutes, even if you don't want to write a full-fledged review, just go ahead and get on that iTunes and leave a five-star rating. It means a lot, and I appreciate everyone that has gone on there and done that so far. Now, there are enough classic stories to cover a whole lot of episodes, but I want to hear what you've got to say. Send your story into syypodcast at gmail.com and get your story on the podcast. And if you have a request, just like Andy out in Kokomo, Indiana, be sure and send those either through email or through social media, facebook.com slash syypodcast, Twitter and Instagram at syypodcast. Thanks, as always, to freepd.com for this week's music, and thanks to freesound.org for providing several sound effects for the show. Whatever I can't record here in the studio, I get from freesound.org. For a full list of credits, please be sure to visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Now, next week on the show, we're going to tell a story that has to be told in a certain way, and only in a certain way. In fact, there's a group of these stories that have to be told just so. Well, this has been Episode 7 of Stories of You and Yours. I have been Sean Ennis. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Music